is the Bad Reputation Podcast. Subscribe to us on iTunes on your smartphone or tablet. Featuring the most up-to-date reputation management, social media, and entrepreneurial information on the web. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Todd Collins Official. And now, the host of Bad Reputation, the reputation rock star, Todd Collins. In three, two, one. All right, guys, welcome back. I uh, I have a, a guest, uh, one that I met last year at the uh, nightclub and bar show in Las Vegas. Um, it was a real quick meeting, quick handshake, and then we both kind of had to go do our own thing. The guy's very, very busy. You've seen him on the Food Network. You've seen him um, on his own show. You've seen him on Bar Rescue. Uh, Chef Brian Duffy. How you doing, brother? Good morning, sir. How are you? I'm doing good, man. Where where are you right now? Uh, oddly enough, I am on the 30th floor of a hotel in the middle of Times Square. Uh, it is my daughter's uh, annual birthday trip where uh, she gets to take one friend up to New York. We get a hotel room. We go shopping, go out to dinner the night before. We run around Times Square like complete and utter uh, – maniacs we actually don't call times square times square because it's known as father duffy square which was uh a great 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 uh uncle cousin something like that of ours so we run around times square father duffy square for uh, for the night and then we go shopping all the next day so today is a shopping day yeah we saw we were following you on instagram stories uh a couple hours ago and uh yeah looks like you guys were having a good time. Um, you're, you're super, super, super active, not only as, as a businessman, uh, but as a dad, one of the, one of the things, if you guys follow, um, uh, Brian and, and if you follow chef, he'll, uh, to be quite honest, we'll talk about how you can follow him at the end of the show, but a lot of what he puts out is about his family. Um, and, and the time that he spends with his kids and stuff like that. And I think you guys will really enjoy it, but Let's let's get into to your origin story because I've had a I've had a lot of chefs on my show um, and I really enjoy it because to me a lot of the chefs that I meet are some of the hardest working people out there. Uh, it's it's something that um, I I respect highly, especially because a lot of my clients are restaurateurs. I don't feel like a lot of restaurateurs really focus a lot on how amazingly creative some of these people really are. I truly believe that, that chefs ha- are, are really, truly artists. Um, I put them kind of in the same basket as, as tattoo artists and as painters and things of that nature, especially the really, really good ones. Um, but let's talk about your origin story, man. I want to talk about how you got into this. Because Are you originally from Pennsylvania? Is that right? Yeah, I was born and raised in the, uh, like the suburbs of Philadelphia. I live about six miles outside of the city when I was Okay. Yeah. And so it's funny because I, I grew up like right on the border of Maryland and PA um, okay. in the nineties. I graduated high school in 1997. So I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I'm older here, but uh, we used to go up to Philadelphia all the time and skateboard. We used to go to Love Park back in the nineties when it was cool Oh yeah, dude. To, to go skateboard. Yeah, really. It's gone. Yeah, I it's mean, gone. It's, it's still there. It's still there. I believe, you know, I, I haven't run through the city in a little while, but I believe there's actually a skate park in there now i there's, can't remember yeah there's an area where you can do it but back then it was guys like stevie williams and 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 guys like that that were uh it, it was a it was a well-known place to go as a skateboarder in the 90s um until they well, that was like illegal back then 
Yeah, it was. Well, that's what it was all about. I mean, back then, yeah. it, when I was growing up, skate, skateboarding was a was very anti uh, establishment. Now it's very, very, very massively commercialized and accepted, which is okay. I mean, it, it is what it is. But when we were growing up, sure. we had to fight to go skate somewhere, so it's kind of how it was. Well, and actually, if uh, uh, if you're driving into the city uh, on the and you're coming in on the drive on the West River Drive, and you show up on that right-hand side right before you make that left to get up in front of the art museum, there's a skate park right there. That's where it is. Yeah, and there used to be right an there. there used to be an indoor skate park. This is how crazy we always – my attention deficit always gets off, gets us off of the topic of where I'm going. But there used to yeah, be an indoor – podcast. We're good. There used to be an indoor skate park there called Spunk that we used to go to. Oh, and you, sounds, you would, sounds horrible. Oh, it was filthy. It was terrible. You would go in. You would skate. Oh, you, what a horrible name. It was a horrible name. You would oh, come goodness. out of there – and you would be coughing up black stuff because of all, uh, I don't know what was inside there. My assumption is this, in about 20, 30 years, the doctors are going to, they're, they're going to look at me and they're going to be like, yeah, something's wrong with you. And it's all going to go back to what happened at Spunk and the black stuff that I was coughing up. Oh yeah, seriously. It was terribly. Absolutely. But Dude, every, everything we do, everything we do now has an opportunity for a payout in 10 or 15 years. No you question. Be like, yeah, I took a cab once. All right, well, let's do the cab companies. <laughs> well, it's like that cheesesteak's going to come back and haunt you, man. That cheesesteak I saw with that got to be real cheese uh, stuff on your Instagram stories. I, 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 uh, dude, that was the worst. I don't, can I curse on here? Yeah. I, wow. God, absolutely. That was the worst fucking hot dog I ever had. That was three hot dogs that me and my daughter and her best friend got. That was 24 goddamn dollars. And it was the worst hot dog I've ever had. <laughs> Hands down, the worst hot dog I've ever had. And I told the guy, I was like, that sucked. That sucked. <laughs> and the guy was like, oh, well, he, I mean, he didn't speak much English and it was okay. And, and, and I obviously shook his hand and tipped him and all that stuff. But it was the worst fucking hot dog I've ever had. Well, you're allowed, to, you're allowed to, to say that, though. Eh, but I can't. But I don't have to be a dick about it. There's a difference. Yeah. There's a difference, you know. I, think I mean, you were being a dick. I think you were just letting him know, dude. Up your game. Oh yeah, but he doesn't give a shit. He nah. serves five thousand of those a day, and he probably doesn't even own his cart. He's probably just working there, and it just—it was horrible. It was so bad. I, we lost Brian's mic. Can't hear him. Can't hear you. So Brian's talking right now. We have no idea what he's saying. We're out. There he is. All right, there we go. We're just going to go that way. Look, Brian Duffy's back. So so let's get in your uh, origin story. Uh, Pennsylvania. You grew up in Pennsylvania. Yeah, but I got yeah, but I got no – is that better? Yeah, it's fun. There we go. So uh, anyway, yeah, so I grew up in PA. There we go. <laughs> All right, so how did you get in? Horrible hot dog. It was yeah, yeah. Horrible hot dog, New York. You grew up in, in in Pennsylvania. How did you get? How did you get? Were you always into like food and 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 creation, or what happened? How, what caused us? Both my parents were great cooks growing up. I started working in restaurants when I was about fourteen, bussing tables, you know, washing dishes. I worked at a place called Castles which was this tiny little shithole in a little town called Narberth, Pennsylvania. And Old Man Castle, uh, first off, everybody smoked. The cooks, 
the dishwasher while they were working cooks dishwashers servers there was always an ashtray so there used to be the back of the kitchen had a wall that was only finished on one side so where the dishwasher was it was exposed uh wood exposed two by fours and there were ashtrays set on the two by fours so the servers would come back to the dish area drop dishes off and take a drag of their cigarette and be like honey go clean table four like it was bad dude it was bad and uh hold on i'm moving around i'm in bed so i'm trying to get a better shot than of just me in bed um uh, so it was a it was a horrible it was a horrible example but at the end of the shift we would get tipped out by the servers and we would have to go downstairs to Castle's office, which had a floor safe. And he would hold up a piece of paper that we would have to look at. And it would show us how much we owed in taxes, which basically meant that we were giving all this money back to this old man. So I'd make a hundred bucks in taxes and I earned tips and I'd have to give him $26. Like it was crazy. It was crazy, but uh, so so that's kind of where I started, and then I worked in a couple little restaurants here and there through high school, and um, when I had finally graduated high school, I went to college, and uh, and I hated, I couldn't stand school, like full blown, hated it, so I quit going to college and went to Savannah, Georgia for uh, for uh, spring break, St. Patrick's Day. And then while I was down there, one of my buddies is like, you know, what are you going to do? What are you, what are you thinking about? Like guy talking in the middle of a car ride to Savannah, Georgia. And I didn't know. I really didn't know. So I was working in restaurants still. And then ultimately I quit restaurants and said, I'll never work in a restaurant again. And I ended up working for Ralph Lauren um, in the city because I was tired of working nights, weekends, and holidays. So I ended up working for Ralph Lauren in the city where I worked every goddamn night, weekend, and holiday. And uh, I, I finally decided, you know what, maybe I'll just go to school for this. One of my buddies made a suggestion, and I ended up going to culinary school when I was about, I guess, 20, 19 or 20. So. And it just took off from there. Did it just, was it just natural? Well, I mean, there wasn't a takeoff. I mean, for me, it was a launching point because I now had a career. And that, to me, was something that was important. I mean, look, I was a kid who hated school since I was two years old. Um, you know, I, I, I have ADD, as you can tell from this conversation. Uh, it's kind of the nature of the beast. You know, I mean, it's that creative beast that we get. And uh, back then when you were diagnosed, there wasn't really an outlook or a method on how to deal with that. Students or teachers didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm 48 years old. So, you know, this was, uh, you know, second grade all the way moving into about 13 years old where I really had no idea what I was doing in school or how it was going to be directed. Um, and back then when you had ADD, they're really, you know, they kind of shuffled you around. They didn't know what it was. All you were was a kid who was fidgety. You were a kid who just, you know, didn't focus, didn't get homework done. And so for me, it was a horrible existence of school. And then when I finally had a direction of what it is that, that a focused idea and a place to put my creative outlook that's when things really started to change because once I got into school I was a bull man I was I was not going to stop or be stopped I mean my graduating class started with I think 36 
and we graduated 12 and there's two of us left in the industry to this day. So I can attest to everything that you just said, right? I'm 41. I was diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder when I was in uh, sixth grade. Um, they, my parents, my parents didn't know what to do. They just, their assumption was that this kid uh, is extremely impulsive, um, cannot focus, uh, uh, is constantly jumping off, you know, the roof of the house and jumping sure. skateboards into ramps and riding bikes through fences. I mean, that was just something I was. I, the only time that I felt comfortable was when I was pushing myself to some extreme. And so they put me on medication and back then, and you, you probably remember this back then, there was only one medication that they gave kids. And, that was Ritalin. and I, I'll never forget which, the which. that I, I was given Ritalin. Um, my, my parents gave it to me on a Saturday. I'll never forget it. They gave it to me on a Saturday. They started me, started me off, started me off, Brian at 20 milligrams. And they, my mom found me on the couch in like a state of like comatose drooling and uh, they eventually, they adjusted it and everything else like that. But the difficulty in school, same situation. Um, however, if I had, and this is where I want parents to understand this. If I had a teacher that was structured in a class that I was interested in, I excelled extremely well. Now, if there was something that I really wanted to do or get or win, the competitiveness that I feel a lot of kids that ha that are diagnosed with it, they typically are winners when they're very focused on what they want. So what you what you stated when you were in school, you found what you liked, you were able to tap in and finally go, now I can use whatever this was back here that was knocking to get out, I can now utilize this is the same way I feel about how we are digitally from an advertising standpoint, right? Like people hire me now to come up with ideas, right? And so like, I'll, I'll go into a room and I'll come up, come up with an idea. And they're like, why couldn't I think of that? And I'm like, I don't know. It's just how my brain works. Like I can see things like that and you can't. And I, that's one of the things that any, if you're a parent and you have a kid with attention deficit disorder and you're listening to this episode, please do not give up on that child. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a different beast now. I mean, it's a totally different world yeah. I mean, back then. I mean, I'm, I'm how you're 42. So I'm six years older than you. You know, when we were diagnosed, it was an unquote, you know, it was a questionable thing. Nobody knew what to do. Yeah. You know, I was diagnosed at 13. They didn't tell my parents till I was 16. Yeah. So there wasn't a lot that was known about it at that point. Now, first off, every fucking kid out there has ADD. It's just an <laughs> easier thing. And in reality, it's not even that they have ADD. What it is is that they're fucking bored. Yeah. Okay. Because they're not out. They're not doing what they should be doing. They're not out. Look, man, I broke my wrist 12 goddamn times. Why did I break my wrist 12 times? Because I did everything that a kid should do. I climbed trees. I rode bikes. I rode bikes into the street. I jumped off of buildings. I rode down ramps that we made. I broke two wrists at the same goddamn time because we made a wheelbarrow into a go-kart. Okay, because that's what we did. That's what kids did. Now I sit down and play fucking Fortnite for six hours, eight hours, 10 hours. There's no expansion. There's no release of energy. So, yeah, that kid's got fucking ADD because he's not focused on a video game. Sorry, that's my point about that. No, not at all. I, and, and the thing is, is that one of the things that like we grew, I always talk about people how like our age group grew up in, in one of the most amazing generations of toys, of 
things to do of creativeness of keeping ourselves busy we we, we had every everything that we that our generation had from garbage pill kids to metal transformers to the, the toys that were out there to, i mean we had we had one of the best childhoods uh, that you could possibly ask for i agree i agree with that we got yeah, seriously we got to see biking and skateboarding and snowboarding all these different sports that were amazing sports evolve into what they are now today and and our generation had a lot to, to do with that. And I'm, I, to me, it's, it's amazing. Well, we also, we, we also, we were outside, dude. We were in nature. We were, we were, whether you lived in the city or the suburbs. I mean, I grew up in a neighborhood of a boatload of kids. My neighbors up the street had eight kids. Yeah. My best friend down the street, she had seven children in her family. You know, I mean, it was one of those things where we were outside. My parents, you know, my best friend walked up to my house at the age of four years old and knocked on the door and said, my name is Paula. Do you have any kids that I can play with? She was four, dude. Yeah. Okay. She lived, she lived 300, 400 yards away from me and had to cross a major intersection yeah. to get to my house in the suburbs. And that's what it was. And I played with Paula until I, I went out to dinner with her the other night. Like, that's what we did was we were out. We did things. Now it's a totally different story. My daughter can have an entire relationship and conversation on the phone. When she thinks about something, she puts it in a shopping cart. When she wants to get something for herself, she automatically goes over there and she buys it. Yeah. You know, because she's got an account that she puts her money in. Right. That's online. I didn't have that luxury. I ran around for fucking quarters when we wanted to go and buy a goddamn candy bar. You know, look, I mean, my question to you, and and, the, and and this is all; these are all great things. But my question to you would be: What would we have done if we would have had the accessibility to the technology that our kids have now? Don't you think we would have we we would have done the same thing? Oh, absolutely. There's no doubt. Right. There's no doubt if your parents allowed that. My yeah. parents, I'm sure, your parents did the same thing because we're around the same age. They told us to get out of the house and go and find something to do. Definitely. So I would leave the house on a Saturday morning at eight o'clock and I wouldn't come home unless the bell rang. And my mother, you know what? She didn't even have a bell. She had a triangle on the front porch. Right. That if we heard that triangle, that meant come home for lunch or come home for dinner. And we would usually leave in the morning and sometimes we wouldn't even come home for lunch because we'd be at a friend's house. Yeah, no, we were the same way. And it was the whistle. For us, it was my dad's whistle. Oh yeah. My girls have a, I have a, I have a double whistle for my girls. They yeah. know. If it's a single whistle, uh, it's just to get their attention. If it's a double whistle, it, you know, it means come. It, it means come over. Yeah. You know, I mean, even even to this day, my girls were on the beach this summer, and they were all the way down at the other end of the beach, hanging out with the dog. I made the whistle. Everybody shows up. Amazing. It's so funny how how uh, you know generations like a lot of our 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 uh, like the stories of us coming up and everything are so similar. It's, it's just really funny, man. I grew up in like the same kind of neighborhood and everything else like that. But, um, so you, you're in school, you, you, you graduate, 12 of you graduate, you, 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 then from there, what happens? Do you, do you go back? So you go back into, you were probably working in a restaurant during the time you were in school, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, I did, I did two apprenticeships and worked at a bar where I was a bouncer. So I did an apprenticeship at the Four Seasons in Philadelphia while going to school full-time. I worked at a really cool little Italian restaurant, a very, very well-known Italian restaurant in Philadelphia. Um, uh, So I went to the Four Seasons from seven until three. I went to San Marco from four 
until nine. And then I bounced at the main lion until from 10 until 4 a.m. And went to school full time. So I went to school two days a week uh, and, took, and took full classes all day. And then I worked the rest of the week. And so, what- and by the way, one of my kids asked me if he could have the week, one of my students asked me if he could have the week off uh, uh, before finals so that he can sit down and study. And I told him to go fuck himself. I, I, I mean, look, honestly, I, I said it in a joking manner, yeah. but, but at the end of the day, it's, you know, I mean, everybody wants a break and uh, the, the, the hard work is moving away. There's few and far between. It's a small percentage that I'm seeing that are coming out of culinary school these days that are actually workers and that are actually going to make it. There, uh, that's the same in our field. Um, I have uh, a young lady now who is, um, I got my eye on her. Um, if there was a draft for what we do in the agency world, uh, I would have drafted her first pick. She was a friend of, I went to school with her mother. She was, she goes to Coastal Carolina. That's where she goes to school. Um, this kid gets is got probably a 3.8, 3.9 GPA, um, which means nothing to me, um, just from my standpoint on school. Uh, and the creativeness and art and graphic design and artistic nature that she has is absolutely amazing. This kid was creating me content or helping me create content the day after she got her tonsils out. <laughs> That's yeah. There you go, man. Make that, it work. That, Make it that type of work go ethic. Up. Yeah, that type of work ethic doesn't exist. And I literally told her, I said, "Here's the deal. With that type of work ethic, you can take my chair when you get out of school. I'll teach you, you know, everything I know, and you can have it. You can have it all. I'll hand yeah. it." That's. But that is such a. That's why I don't like to judge a generation, but I I do judge per person, and I'm okay with that because you're absolutely right. The guys that taught you, right, the business, your business, the guys that taught me my business, those guys, that was a different breed. I, if, I, if I was like, I'm sick, I can't come to work, they were like, you're a pussy. Come to work. Right? Totally. It just, that was just the nature, dude. Um, yeah. You can't do that now. You can't, you can't say those things now. Um, and, and to be honest with you, man, it kind of sucks. It is what, like, you have to, you have to get, handle everybody with kid gloves and it's and it's extremely strenuous as a business owner right now at least from what i can see you know, with masses i mean i had a conversation with my staff yesterday discussing the importance of the attention to detail and that we need to step away from the phones for a little while and we need to we need to really pay attention to what we're doing and smack dab in the middle of me saying that we have to pay attention to what we're doing one of my my cashier grabbed her phone picked it up and looked at it. And I said, are you like, were you just here for the conversation? And she didn't know what to do. And I said, look, you you couldn't, you couldn't even pay attention to me during the part where I was telling you to pay attention. You know, that's why you left the flags outside. That's why the barbecue sauce was still in the barbecue sauce cooler. When I walked in this morning, because you don't have the ability, you're not paying attention. So at the end of every shift now, you know, it's like we have to babysit. So they have to send me a video of the close down of the restaurant. They have to do a walkthrough, show me the checklist because otherwise they're just, there's no accountability for what it is that's happening. And the, and the other thing is that we're really kind of, uh, 
pussyfooting around staff because we're afraid they're going to quit. Yeah, or something else. Going to quit. No. Or whatever it is. I mean, it's it's pure insanity. And and uh, so we're real. I'm I'm I try to keep everything very process oriented now, just because for that fact, right? Yeah. Because if if everything's set into process. Um, and the only way you learn how to create a process is by making a mistake. So then you create a process around making, not making it again, right? You know, you know, what's really funny is that I do have the process. And, and what I've done is I've said to my staff, okay, I want you to do a closing checklist of what needs to be done. Like in, in my barbecue place in Philly, it's just a pretty straightforward barbecue spot i've got a cashier and i've got a cook and i've got a dishwasher each person have their, has their own responsibility for things that they have to get done so i've said to my cashier i want you to, to uh to put the list together well well asking her to put a, a check list together was as if i was saying hey do me a favor i want you to cure cancer real quick <laughs> like what do you what do you mean you want me to put a list together how, how do you want the list should i should i write it down on a piece of paper do i put it into a computer i don't have excel like i don't know what to do what do you mean to check do i draw boxes next to it and i was like holy shit the the process of getting something done like that warrants question after question after question because there is no free thinking right we're not the the the, the employees that we have these days and i'm not trying to look i don't want to bash employees this whole time but what I, but I want to say is that the, the people that are being generated, the staff that is being generated at this point is counterproductive to what it is that we need to get done on a daily basis. I used to say, do, make sure that you clean the convection oven at the end of the shift. And now they're saying, how do you want me to clean it? What should I clean it with? Should I use a towel? Should I use a rag? Should I use a sponge? Do I use chemical agent? Do I use lemon juice? How do you want me to clean this? Instead of just clean the fucking convection oven. Yeah. You know, and, and you that's teach where them we are first? now. Do you, do you educate them before asking them? Uh, in most cases, yeah. I mean, if you're, a, if you're a 25-year-old dude and I tell you that I, I want you to clean the fryer, I'm going to show you how to clean the fryer the first time. I'm going to show you how to get the oil out of the restaurant. I'm going to show you what to do. And then I, I'm finding that I have to show or coach four, five, six times. You know, I mean, that's the thing. Well, hey, I didn't, you know, I didn't clean the fryer last night because it was too hot. Okay, well, you need to clean a fryer when it's hot. You can't clean it in the, you know, it's right. like, right. And then again, these are, these are, these are trivial little minuscule problems that we have. But we as, as owners and operators, we are spending more time having to explain what it is that we need done, that it is counterproductive to what we need to do to get the job done. Yeah. Interestingly enough that these same, these same employees could simply, uh, and they have the ability to do this. They could simply go to YouTube and type in how to properly clean. <laughs> oh, absolutely. No, exactly. And that's, you know, I mean, it's, and I'm the, but I'm also the type of person, you know, I still have a fatherly part to me where I'm constantly trying to educate. Yeah. So, you know, my, my cashier walked into the restaurant the other day and in the middle of the floor, because I was doing some work, there was a hammer, there was a screw gun, there was a bunch of wrenches, like shit like that laying in the middle of the floor. And she picked them all up and she's like, should I leave these there or what should I do with them? And I said, if I found a bunch of tools, what would I do with a bunch of tools? Would I, would I leave them in the middle of the floor during an entire rest, during an entire service period? Or would I put them in a toolbox? Oh, you're, yeah, you're right. I, yeah, I'll put them in the toolbox. 
like that that's yeah. that's a problem yeah and and maybe that comes from a parenting thing too right like i mean maybe, the kids are first I, I mean, a majority of it, I, I believe that. And, you know, my dad was in the, in the army for 28 years, so. Oh, so you had structure, but you also had you also had some free thinking opportunities. A hundred percent. You know, I mean, his, his everything that that was was everything that that I do from like I have a lot of pride in what I do and a lot of pride in my work ethic, right? Um, if a client called a client called me yesterday, Sunday, right at uh, 12 o'clock. It was like 11.30, and I was on the phone with them for about two hours yesterday. Most people, the average person nowadays, is going to let that phone go to vo- let that call go to voicemail on a Sunday while you're sitting at home and handle it one day. And that's just not how I am. And, and I, that type of stuff I, I owe all to my dad because everything that we do now, the biggest way that I've set myself apart from everybody else, at least that I compete with, has been based on work ethic. and attention and things of that nature and i think that all comes from him and and how i was parented that there's no question my work ethic comes from how i was parented um yeah and the respect for someone if i work for them that was the other thing i always had that i always had massive respect i remember when i was in the car business when i was younger because i didn't i was like you i didn't know what the fuck i was going to do the car if it was either the car business or the military at that point if i wasn't going to be successful in the car business I wish I would have joined the military at this point. I hundred percent. Right I agree, one hundred percent. My dad even tells totally. me you would have been. He's like, you would have been a lifer. I guarantee it. And he's like, it would have been perfect for you. And I said, I know, but it was tough when I was twenty two, twenty three years old, making, you know, back then, ninety five grand a year at twenty two, twenty three years old. I wasn't going in the military at that point. There was no fucking. What, way. Were, you, what were you doing at twenty two that you were making ninety grand? A year? I was selling cars. I was selling cars. I went into the car business um, and it just clicked. Yeah, I, was, I was just really good um, at creating uh, a relationship really fast with somebody. So, like people, I remember my, the manager, the, I actually still talk to the lady that hired me, believe it or not. She's in the mortgage business now. She's, at, she, she's actually a client now, believe it or not. Mine. But she, she literally said to me, she's like, I've never seen somebody be able to create relationships and, and, get people to like them that fast before she's like, that's really amazing. And I, and I was very successful in that business. I opened up my own car dealership at 30 years old. I did nice. very well in that business. And then I, and then I transitioned into by seeing that there was a gap, right? Cause our big thing came from reputation management. I saw that there was a gap online where people were getting defamed consistently online. There's nothing they could do about it, especially restaurant owners. And I jumped on that, that train educated myself got other people tapped into other people, got them to educate me. And then that's when we I exited the car business and launched our agency. And that was, you know, years ago, but, um, again, all, all work ethic, but I, I had that choice. I mean, I, and I agree with you. I would, I, if the car business wouldn't have worked out, I would have ended up in the military and I'd probably still be in the military to this day. I mean, yeah. no question about it. So you, um, get, you get out, you're working, so I graduated. I graduated December sixth, and I was in Key Largo, Florida, December 9th. So that was it. I moved immediately. I wanted to go as far south as possible, and I ended up in the Keys. I worked down there for a year, and then I came back to Philadelphia, and I worked all over after that. I mean, I just kind of, you know, moved on with life and uh, did some really cool shit. Not really knowing one hundred percent what direction I wanted to take it, but uh, but I had fun doing it. So. Let's talk about 
kind of how the awareness of you kind of started coming out, right? Because there's probably, there's chefs probably all over the world right now that like, if they saw you or they met you, they know exactly who you are. Um, I know whenever I bring your name up to, to some of the people that I talk to, even here in Maryland, they're like, oh yeah, I know that guy. I know who you're talking about. I know who you're talking about. So you've created this awareness yeah. for yourself. How did that all come to be, right? Like how did, how did, because a lot of people probably want to know this. I know you get asked these questions all the time. How did the how did the Food Network thing and the show thing and the bar rescue thing? Because I remember that's the first time that I saw you. Because I I remember talking to Art and everybody else like that. And I remember I saw you on on bar rescue and I remember going, dude, I love this guy because he's like he walked in the kitchen and is like, you're accountable. Like this is yeah. it was very in the face, so I I could relate to it because I would be I would be like I would have said the exact same thing. So how did how did that all train? How did that all happen? So I started uh, doing TV stuff in 2003-ish, four maybe, give or take. And I started to do a lot of local stuff, you know, just some, some local stuff in Philly. They asked me one day if I would do an event on or do a, uh, an episode on Fox over like Memorial Day when nobody's in Philadelphia. And they wanted me to do a grilling segment, but they didn't have a grill. So I went to my parents' house. I took my mother's, my father's grill and put it in the back of my buddy's truck and drove it into the city with this like four foot wide cooler. And I loaded it up with food and, you know, got down there and set it up. It took me an hour and a half to set up. It was this long drawn out process. And, uh, and then I did two minutes of TV. Like it was pretty funny, yeah. you know? And then about three weeks later, I got a call from NBC and a guy named Steve Levy asked me if I would do a segment for him. So I started to do a couple different segments in Philly and kind of play around. And then I got involved in doing something up in New York. Like I reached out on my own to a show, a guy named Paul Dillon, who worked at Hudson Valley Community College up in New York and asked if I could be on a show. And that was in 2000, I guess that was 2003 or four in that area. So I did a show up in New York, you know, I remember driving up there and spending the day on set. <clears throat> and then I had gotten a call from a friend of mine who had said, Hey, there's a show coming out. It's called date plate. You should uh, put your tapes in. So I, I literally sent a series of VHS tapes down to a, a, a production company in Knoxville, Tennessee, and started to work for a show called date plate. And that was the beginning of a Food Network show. Um, I did that for about a year. And then I started to do uh, appearances and stuff like that. Um, so I started working with a company with GE, General Electric. I did a live demonstration for those guys at some big high-end conventions. And then I, uh, I started to do a local series in Philadelphia for eight years um, on the morning show. I did for the first two or three years, I think, every single week. Um, and I was very aggressive about it. Hey, do you guys need me this week? What do you want me to do? And then it got to a point that they were like, hey, we're going to start bringing other chefs on as well. So can you do this, this, or this? So I did every Wednesday morning. And then I split it up after about four years um, into every other week and then every other month because it was just getting to be too much. Right. Um, and during that time, I was opening restaurants and um, for other people, I was working for other people. And then uh, I left and started, to, I went to this Irish pub 
And I, I made a very clear point that I was not going to be doing the classic Irish pub food, that I was going to set a new standard for what Irish food was. And I created a cuisine called New Celtic. And I started to really play around. And then the Today Show started to call. So I started doing the Today Show. Um, and then from there, I got another call and somebody said, hey, look, we're looking to do this show. Um, can you send your tapes through? So I sent a whole bunch of my live stuff through. Uh, and the next thing I know, I was doing Bar Rescue. And I was standing in Chicago uh, with Taffer, who uh, my brother, oddly enough, was a, a, a VP of programming for Spike TV. So my brother basically fought to put Bar Rescue on camera. Bar Rescue was never going to happen. Yeah. Um, nobody was picking it up. And my brother fought to put Bar Rescue on camera. And he fought hard for it. And it became what it was. You know, I mean, my brother worked with uh, uh, Spike TV for a bunch of years. He worked there for six years, I think, and fought to get Bar Rescue on. And the funny part is he called me and said, hey, I'm looking for an Irish chef. And I was like, I was voted best Irish chef in America. He's like, yeah, I need somebody who knows, who, 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 you know, who knows TV. And I'm like, fuck you. I've been on TV for, <laughs> you know, seven years or five years or whatever it was. And then he's like, yeah, but I need somebody who, you know, who knows Irish pubs in Philly. I was like, dude, I was the chef at Downey's on front and south. Like, you know, and then he, then he literally said, he's like, fuck you. I'm calling mom. Like joking around. Yeah. He knew. I mean, really later, about three weeks later, I got a phone call from a production company and they said, Hey, can you send us your tapes? So, you know, I sent them my tapes. I had a whole bunch of stuff pulled together. We put a bunch, I put a reel together on my own. It took me about two weeks to get it together because I had no idea what I was doing. And then it kind of narrowed down to me and a couple of other chefs. And um, they said, can you fly to, can you fly to Chicago? You know, we'll put you up in Chicago and can you shoot an episode with us so we can see how it is. And that was it. You know, I mean, I flew to Chicago, I shot an episode and then uh, out of the top 120 shows of Bar Rescue, the top 10 worst episodes ever, I own eight of them. You know, I mean, so my shows air pretty much every week now. Um, oh, and, yeah, I left, and I left the show, we started that in 2000, I want to say nine or 10. And I left the show three seasons in. Yeah. So. Because when you left, you did, you, that's when you started your own thing, right? No, I started consulting and, right. uh, you know, the show had made a major turn at that point right you know it went from being a reality show to it went to being a produced show to me mm -hmm. um you know there was there was something to be said about the fact that i walked into a kitchen and and didn't you know i didn't know that there was there was mouse shit in the bread container right i walked into a kitchen and could smell that something was dead um i i requested that i didn't know anything about the chefs i requested that i didn't know anything about the owners or the kitchens um, and we had production meetings prior to every episode where we would go in and we would discuss the possible scenarios and what was going to happen. And, and, you know, I mean, it got to my final episode. They said to me, Hey, when are you going to start yelling? And I was like, I'm done. I, I don't want to do this. And, and it just wasn't fun anymore. Yeah. Um, it was an awesome show, man. Those first bunch of seasons, I really believe that we, we made an impact on the restaurant industry. Um, and then it turned into the bartenders banging the owner, uh, the owners, you know, also having sex with a server, 
You know, there's, there was always an angle behind it because that's TV. You've got to find an angle. Sure. But in reality, the restaurant industry itself is an angle of, of its own and they had to find things to produce and that's the way that it happened. So there was a lot of planning that went into every episode. Um, we kind of knew the direction we were going to go before we got there. So uh, that way we had an opportunity to work on menus and we had an opportunity to have things approved and recipes and all of that stuff. Um, but it, it just became, you know, uh, we had fun and we taught a lot of people some amazing things. And to this day, I loved doing the show. I really did. I have, I have crew that I've worked with. I have uh, my culinary producer on my show was the culinary producer on Bar Rescue. One of the show producers uh, edited my last show. Um, you know, I'm still friends with a lot of those people and, and the people that I met on the show as well. Michael Tips is my partner in certain things. Nikki Liberato is one of my dearest friends. He's like my brother. Um, you know, these are all people that I've worked with through the years. Keith Breedlove, who's been on. Jason Santos, who's been on. These are all friends of mine. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, is that what you guys did on the show <clears throat> really, truly did help people. And if anything, it, it also educated people that were watching the show that are in the industry. And they were like, wow, you know what? Something similar to that is happening right now in my, in my business. If I was an owner or as a manager or as a, an employee, they saw that and they could take that back to them and basically say, hey, look, this is a way to come turn this around. So I agree with you 100%. And I think you always look, it was It was an industry show that went mainstream. Correct. Yes. It went from an educational show to a uh, a mainstream dramatic uh, reveal episode. And I feel like, you know, unfortunately, that's just the nature of the beast, right? I mean, it, it, oh, absolutely. It, to keep attention, you've got to start creating, you, you start coming up with ideas and you're like, we got to do this, we got to do this to keep the attention. I mean, if you think about it, the worst thing that you could possibly do in a bar for the first two and a half seasons was have a back on a chair. Remember that? Of course, running through it. The worst thing that you could do in a bar was, but see, let me ask you a question. You said horse running through it. Do you think that that was random? Absolutely not. Come on. I mean, that wasn't random. No, of course not. That was, I don't think that, but I, at that point I'm going, did we just jump the shark? But the bar tent, you know, but the bar stools that weren't, you weren't allowed to backs on them. It was the worst thing. What did a bar back, what did a bar stool back do? It cut you off from the other people in the bar. It wasn't social. Uh, it wasn't the way it happened. And then two and a half years later, we had a new sponsor that was a bar stool company. And so it started to change. We had to pay the bills. We had to, you know, and that's the nature of TV and there's yep. nothing wrong with that. Yeah, but but when you're an educational show and what that was in that first couple of years, you can't contradict what it is that you're saying. Now, if you're going to say, "Hey, look, trends have changed," that's a different story. But it was an over-the-night change, mm -hmm. you know. That and that's just the way that I saw it, dude. I loved doing the show. I really did. I made some unbelievable friends. Uh, I worked with clients that were on. The, I have clients that were on the show. Um, I had clients that I met from doing the show year after year after year. Look, I, I loved doing it, man. Well, let's loved talk about that because because now you're now you're in. I mean, I I feel like just the natural evolution of you was okay can, after the show, of of course, especially was the consulting side of things. 
Um, yeah. Now, I remember uh, last year um, after we met, then Jeremiah, our, our buddy Jeremiah, got, got you and I to um, grab uh, some menus from uh, some of my clients. And we did the, um, uh, I, I guess it was a review of their menus and things that they could do to adjust and things of that nature. And I was blown away by um, you picking, picking apart the menus and how you saw it from your standpoint of being in the industry as being a successful businessman, as being a success, successful restaurateur. And, and it was really, really educational. Let's talk about that because the consulting side of things is where I think now truly a lot of restaurateurs need it and they need people within the industry that have the experiences that you have. Let, let's talk about kind of how that happened because you said some of the people from the show became their clients, but now you're in this completely other world. You still have the restaurant, but now you're doing the consulting. Well, you know, I mean, the big thing for me when it came to the menu read was I can look at a menu and I can find the problems within it very fast. Okay. Whether it be utilization, whether it be layout, whether it be design, whether it be uh, context, whether it be can be concept, uh, you know, and most people, the average owner operator puts things on a menu that they like. They don't think about it from a conceptual standpoint. So for me, when I take a look at a menu, and there was really only one menu during that live read, and I think I did four menus. Mm -hmm. There was only one menu that was fully put together. And yeah, that, that was, was a Michael's, wine bar. What that was, was that? Michael's. That was Michael's Cafe. No, no, there was a no, there was a high end wine bar out of San Francisco. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember. Yeah, that was the only menu that was put together well. Because it was a thought out, it was it was a thought out process. Everybody else had mediocre shit. I could tell that they were buying their food from Cisco or U.S. Food. I could tell that a couple of them had the assistance of a U.S. Food or Cisco operator to help them put their menus together. Um, you know, when you've got typos on your menu, there's a problem. You know, look, I made my mistake when I opened my barbecue space. Uh, I had a typo on my menu that could have cost me a lot of money. And in reality, it cost me, it cost me socially because somebody found that and then they ripped it apart on social media to the point that I had people coming in demanding to have that product, despite the fact that I was going to lose, you know, $7 for every dish that, that I sold with it. And I was literally like, fuck it. I'm not doing that. You know, I made a mistake. I didn't, I didn't have the, the, the three to five people Look at the menu like I always suggest. A couple of those people should always be your cut, your consumer. They should always be. Take your top five consumers and put a menu down in front of them and have a look at that menu. You guys know who they are. If you want a bar, it's Joe who comes in every day at 4.15. You know, it's Sandy who comes in and sits at the end of the bar next to Joe every day at 4.45. You know, these are the people that are eating in your place. And these are the, the general uh, uh these are the people that pay your bills on a daily basis. Those are the people that you should be sharing a menu with, as well as your sister, your brother, your partner. Everybody should be looking at a menu and giving you notes back on the menu. Because you know what? I walk into places and I can walk into a spot. I have a client who had uh, meatballs on their menu. They were meatballs, man. And they kept telling me they were the number one selling item they had on their menu. Well, numbers don't lie. In reality, it was the 22nd most, uh, the best selling item on the menu. Okay. 
But those meatballs we brought in beef, pork, and veal, which was something we didn't use in anything else other than a hamburger that we used beef in. The pork and veal was an add-in to the dish that we brought in for no reason. We had partially on the menu that they didn't use it anywhere else, whether it be a garnish, whether it be in a sauce, whether it be whatever, they didn't use it anywhere else. The amount of time that it took to make the meatballs was a labor issue. It ended up being a high labor cost on the item itself, as well as a food cost. So the first thing I did when I looked down the menu was take the meatballs off. You can't, we're known for our meatballs. People know us for our meatballs. No, they don't. You have a meatball on the menu because it's something that you love because you're trying to pay an homage to somebody else who's out there, but this is business. It's show business. Maybe it's not show friends. So we remove the things that we don't need that are labor cost, you know, labor issues. You know, in my place, I say to my staff every day, I have five opportunities to make a sale, ribs, pork, chicken, beef, and sausage. It's that simple. Those are the items that I make my money off of. If I don't execute those at the highest level possible, then I lost money on that dish. It's just that simple. The same thing goes with menu items that you have that are non-sellers. I have a couple of items on my menu that don't sell that well. My next round of menus, it's not going to be there. I don't care that Bob comes in and he absolutely loves it when I do this dish. It's not a seller for me. And I'm sorry, Bob, but I'm going to make something different. Yeah, and, and, and so when you, when you explain this to the restaurant owner, right? So let's kind of like take it to my side, right? I have a client that, or a potential client that um, I'm meeting with this week. They're very well known. They've got uh, almost 20 locations nationwide. They, I'd love to dig into that menu. I can tell you that right off the bat. There is a possibility. We'll talk about it after the show. Anyway, <laughs> uh, the um, so we're going to talk about some things, but they've had some negative feedback lately uh, online, um, and, and, and it was based on... Um, I'm not, I don't want to get too far into it, but regardless, it's based on something completely opposite from the restaurant and uh, it's re- resulted in them having negative reviews. And you know what we do. Our, our whole point is to create processes within the restaurant, within the business to protect the restaurant owner, to protect the staff, um, to protect the C-levels um, and creating processes for feedback from these, from the customers to get not only one intercept negative reviews where we can get the customer back in. Cause the goal is let's make things better for the customer to get them back in. So here's, and their policy is we don't respond to anything. Now that's their company policy, positive or negative, which I disagree with. If someone comes into your restaurant, they spend $275 and they're nice enough to go onto Google or Facebook and leave a paragraph of how amazing your staff was, how amazing the food was and things of that nature. I believe the new word of mouth is, online. And I believe that just at least say thank you, or at least like it or whatever it is, give them some sort of feedback saying, Hey, this is great. We'd love Jane, John, thank you so much for coming in. Can't wait to have you guys back. By the way, the next time that you come in, you should also try blank, right? So it's a great way to kind of get another, uh, get them to try another meal or whatever it is. And we're relatable, right? We, We now have a finger and our ears are open and our finger to the pulse. However, they did respond to a negative review. And in the actual response, they invite the person back, giving them and offering them a gift certificate to come back in the restaurant. Now, to me, that is a red flag because now as a customer, I'm going to see that. I'm going to see that negative review response. They're offering a gift certificate. What is the thing that I need to do to get a free meal at that restaurant? Sure. Absolutely. I totally, 
totally get that and see that. I, uh, I danced around negative reviews. I replied, I rebutted, I went on it even as, I mean, I went, I went as far one night, some kid wrote something on Twitter while I was still in the restaurant and I went over and picked up his table and told him to get the fuck out. You know, like I've made mistakes like that in the past. The thing is, is that the average person doesn't write a response. Your average customer guest does not write a response. The, the really good reviews are few and far between. In reality, you're not, you know, it, it's, it's uh, somebody might read something on Facebook. Hey, enjoyed going here last night. But the problem is that, that we have created an entire culture of food critics, of hospitality critics. So what it comes down to anymore, I don't reply. I say, thank you. I say, hey, I'm the owner of the restaurant. If there's something that I can do for you, please contact me and I give them my information. Of doing that, of the negative responses, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. Let's say 2%, 5% will actually reply to you when you reach out back to them. Okay. Especially if you go through Yelp. Look, I did a whole podcast called Fuck Yelp. Yelp's a disgrace. It's a horrific existence for restaurants. Um, they are a pay to play site across the board. Uh, restaurant owners who are, uh, who are um, investing in opportunities to spend money on Yelp, you know, it's just they create a scenario where you have to spend money. I look down and I have, right now I have a review that's a great review, a five-star review. And then directly underneath of it, I have a two-star or one-star review. And then underneath of there, I've got another five. And underneath of there, I've got a one because somebody was irrationally mad at my menu. You know, it's like, first off, don't use proper English if you're going to rip something apart. Don't tell me you're a rat, irrationally mad. Um, but for me, I, I don't even engage anymore. It's just not worth it to me. Yeah. Um, because in reality, what they do is they want a free meal. They want something on the back end. If somebody truly wants to give you a critique, make a phone call. Send a letter. Send an email to let somebody know that there was a problem. Or if there's a problem while you're in the restaurant, address that problem while you're there. You, you know there's a manager. They're, 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 they're not going to do that. They're not going to do that. And you know, you know that. But what I do is I try to engage the customer, the client, or I'm sorry, the guest to do that. Because we as owners and operators, if I am a manager who's walking through the floor and doing what I'm supposed to be doing, which is table touching and the whole nine yards, not putting fires out at every given moment, not hiding in an office trying to get a schedule done. If I'm touching a table and I'm handing you my business card and I'm saying, if there's anything that we can do differently, please feel free to reach out and do that. I've always made sure that every manager, every hostess, maybe not hostesses, every manager, every server, every bartender, every chef has a business card. Here is my card. Please contact me if you ever have a problem. And then you're opening up a bridge. You're opening up an opportunity to have a true conversation. You're bypassing the ability to, neg to have a negative review online by having managers that are going out and physically talking to people and meeting people and communicating with them. And on the same token, I am now able to fix an issue at the moment as opposed to having def to defend myself online. Yeah, those, are, those are all great points. So in, in retort to that, statistically, there's more positive statistically. 
there's just from research that's been done, there's statistically more positive reviews online than there are negative reviews, which is, which is pr probably about right. There's, I don't know what year that study was done, but relook at that study now. 2018. 2018. So we're moving into 2020. We're in a completely, utterly negative world right now. Everybody hates everybody. Opinions, everybody's got them, man. Everybody wants to get out there and they really want to have that that shock, that negative world. I think people want to be positive, but they have a hard time being positive. Yeah. And so I'm glad that you brought that up because in the world that we live in now and where the world is going to go, right, over the next 10 years. So let's think about how fast things change. And as you being dad, you know how fast things change. Your, your daughter can go from 10 to 20 in 10 to 20, 10 years like that. And you, it's like a blink of an eye. So the 10 year old right now that's got their phone in their hand and you know, there's parents out there that constantly are saying like, Oh, you know, my kids don't have access. That's eh, all bullshit to me. I, I don't believe it. I know for a fact that when your kid acts up, you hand them your phone. So don't, don't tell me that you don't, or you give them an iPad. So when they, that actually happens, what ends up happening is, is that they 100% believe 100% that these kids now believe what they see online. One, two, when they do want to be bitched, they want to bitch about something and the general manager does a table touch, the proper table touch, and they say, and at least this is from my experience when I worked in restaurants when I was younger and I would go by and I, as a server and I would say, hey, is there anything else that I can do for you? They sign everything else. We would go through it. They would say no. And then they would leave and they would leave a negative review. And I'm like, I touched the table. I know tons of managers that are like, I touched that table. I asked them if everything was okay and they still left a negative review. And in those situations is where we took the customer's behavior, the guest behavior, and we created processes around that. So like with your restaurant, right? You, your general manager leaves a business card and our clients restaurants, they leave a how did we do card and the how did we do card? The customer then goes and they, they say how we did. Was it a three star, two star, or one star review? We intercept that negative review and the manager or, or us, we take care of responding to that customer or guest. If it's a four or five star review, then the customer then leaves a review on Google or Facebook or wherever they want to leave it. They have the access to do that, right? And then from a technological standpoint, the not 40-year-old Todd, not 40-something-year-old Brian, the 25 to 30-year-old uh, Alice, who's always on her phone, when she connected to Wi-Fi inside the restaurant and she left, she got a thousand feet from the restaurant, a notification pops up on her phone and says, how did we do? Now she has the opportunity to bitch and complain, but not on a public site. Right. Those, those processes, 100% work. I got, I have so much data backing up. There's one restaurant, downtown Baltimore City in the Inner Harbor. We intercepted 83 negative reviews last month. 83. Nice. And they're rated <laughs> 4.7. Now, company, which is awesome. Yeah, so, All right, so we're back. Um, the um so yeah so anyway basically now the owner can look at these negative reviews and kind of see what the issues were and we ended up figuring out that it was a manager this one particular manager was mentioned in all these reviews and in the situations that were occurring this is what was happening right. it was really really interesting man it was it, it's it's interesting um however i agree with you on the on the on a platform side of um um yelp uh even though i have friends that work there i believe that the the model is messed up they screwed up the model yes. um, and it's just not beneficial to restaurant owners at this point. It's sadly, it's just not. Um, yeah, I believe that Google I agree. Facebook are doing a much better job of it. Um, eh, well, really yeah. like TripAdvisor a lot too. I actually prefer TripAdvisor. Big yeah. fan of TripAdvisor. But 
it is what it is. It's just the world that we live in. The word of mouth is now. But I different. think that TripAdvisor is a different world. Uh, TripAdvisor is more for a seasoned traveler, somebody who travels more, who is more open-minded to things. Whereas mm -hmm. Yelp is an opportunity to quickly bitch. Facebook is an opportunity to quickly bitch. Google, you know, I see a lot of good stuff coming out of Google, but I see more, um, uh, it's fewer and far between with what I see for a lot of my clients and, and, and that stuff. So, you know, I mean, you know, it all depends on area and, and the person who's coming in. Yeah, so. you're right. I mean, there's, I have seasonal clients, right? I have clients that are in resort towns and, and TripAdvisor is, it, they could be 4.7 on TripAdvisor and 3.2 on Yelp. And you're just kind of questioning like, well, which one's right. And it really can, yeah. it really confuses the Well, gap. there's, I mean, there's out, there's, that's the thing is you've got to make a decision about as a consumer, that's the problem because there are too many opportunities. There's too many outlooks, you know, for me to go to a restaurant, look, I don't even, I don't even go online to get a review of a restaurant, what I do is ask around. When yeah. I go into a town, I don't go on a Yelp. I mean, I don't go on a Yelp anyway, but I don't, I don't go into any of those areas. I might Google uh, best sushi near me. We know what happens when you Google best sushi near me. The, you know, the, the most popular places end up popping up. The people that are paying or putting their placement in there, the, best pe the people who have the best SEO are the people that are getting the bigger stuff. So what I do is I'll pull a couple out and then I'll do a poll. You know, I'll yeah. ask people, I'll walk through TSA when I'm leaving the airport and be like, yo, yo, I got five, you just been here. You left this town for five years, five years. You were gone. Where's the first fucking place you're going to eat when you come home, you know? And those are the places that you're going to find. As soon as somebody says cheesecake factory, I'm done talking to you. As soon as somebody <laughs> says that they think that Applebee's has the greatest fucking salad bar out there. I'm done talking to you. It's just not, the world. And then I say to them, Hey, look, I'm a chef. Where am I going to eat? And then they're actually giving you a better response in that way. So I don't go online to find a place to eat. I go online to find places that I could possibly go to. Plus I also have a list, you know, I fly a hundred thousand miles a year. So I have a list in my phone every single time that somebody says to me, Oh my God, you're going to San Antonio. You should try this place. So I put it in my phone, and then when I land in that town, I open up my file that says cities. I click on the city that I'm in, and then I do a little research, and I find out about the five or 10 or 15 or 20 different places that the seven people that I met while I've been traveling over the last five years told me to go to, and then I'll usually end up going to one of those places. That sounds like a great idea for a new show, man, called The Duffy List. Yeah, there you go. You know what I'm saying? And it's, yeah. it's it's all Chef Brian Duffy's favorite restaurants from going around, and you can really take it to uh, Fieri. We, we started an app. I'm not taking it to somebody else. <laughs> <laughs> uh, we started an app a long time ago that I never really finished um, just because it just got to a point that it became – it was really tough to keep up with. You know, I mean, it was really tough to keep up with. We did geotagging and fencing, and, you know, you landed in an airport. Uh, you were able to, you know, it would automatically say, Hey, you have the app. These are, these are Brian's five favorite places in the city. Yeah. Like we did that and it was kind of fun. It worked out for a little while. And then, you know, it just kind of faded because, you know, there was too much upkeep with it and all huh. that stuff. It just ended up being a pain in the butt. And my team's not that big to be able to do all that. I've got an assistant who works her ass off for me 24 hours a day, seven days a week. She deals with my crazy brain, my crazy questions, my crazy phone calls but she's on top of it. 
You know, yeah. I've got a great graphic designer. I have an unbelievable um, uh, artist who does all my podcast stuff. I've got a great team around me. I just switched agencies. I went from WME over to Buckwald. I've got a really strong uh, group of managers now that are really aggressive. I've got a great, uh, you know, I'm sorry, a really good group of agents that are super aggressive for what we do and a great manager who is one, a businessman and a partner of mine. You know, we now partner up on projects. As my manager, he is now my partner in most of the businesses that I'm involved in, as is my attorney, as is everybody else. You know, I mean, it's, we've got a good team of people that we work with that some stifle things that I have and they're like, that's not the time for it right now. And some are all go, you know, gung ho about everything we do. So amazing stories from uh, two kids with ADHD. Yeah, seriously. You made it mom. Um, the, <laughs> the, uh, so we typically, uh, and, and I, I really want to get, eventually I want to get back into the consulting side. I know when we're out in Vegas, I'll have my videographer with me. We're, we're going to get back on the consulting side and I'll, I'll obviously try to, to grab you and, and borrow you for two seconds. If you guys have never been to the nightclub and bar show, Brian's um, uh, portion that he does is, is amazing. Um, and he is literally getting dragged in like 17 to 20 different directions. Last time I was there and I was watching him um, in the, in the huge area that he was in where you could see kind of everything that was going on. It was, it was really unbelievable. It's something that if I believe if you're a restaurateur or you own a bar, um, you've got to go to that show in Vegas. Um, I 100% um, uh, recommend going and seeing um, what Brian's doing there. Cause it's, it, it really is spectacular. It's one of the things that attracted me to him. The, 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 I remember seeing him for the first time there and that's when I started following him on social media and it was just everything the guy says is exactly the way it is. Um, and those types of people are, unfortunately, they're just not around as much as they were before. So, you know, leech onto them and get as much out of them as you can from a standpoint of experience, because it's something that I think is a lot of value. What I always ask all my guests when they come in uh, and, and they come on the show, I ask them two questions and I ask them and I ask them to give me six answers and what I like to do is I like to turn those into blog posts because not all of us consume content um, audio uh, from an audio standpoint or a visual standpoint. Some of us like to still read. So based on that, the first question that I'm going to ask you is how as a restaurant owner, can I create a better customer experience? Give me three answers to that. that these people can walk away with their, uh, for their 2020 strategy. Consistency, education and execution. Beautiful. Love that. Can you expound on the education port portion real quick? Got to spend time. What am I going to do? If I'm a car, here's my, here's my analogy. If I'm a car salesman and you walk into my location, I've done a tremendous amount for you. I've given you four walls. I've given you a computer. I've given you a phone. I've given you cars. I've put you through training to be able to be knowledgeable about that product so that you can talk about it. You can sell it. You can know that product inside and out. And that is your job as a car salesman. What do we do when it comes to hostesses or when it comes to servers or something like that? When you first open a restaurant, you spend two weeks in a training process. Chef is there. He's going through every single concept of the menu. He's walking through where this dish comes off of in the kitchen, how long it takes to prepare, the, 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 the profitability of it. He literally explains or she literally explains every part of that dish cocktails we make every cocktail we let you taste it we let you try it that's your first one you open you do two weeks of that three months later we're bringing you in you're trailing a server for two or three days you're doing a menu test you're working through it six months eight months after that 
you're coming through and you might be trail server for one day. You might spend a little bit of time with that person walking through. They're going to show you closing. They're going to show you opening. They're going to tell you the ins and the outs. You know, they really want us to do this, but it's just much easier to do this and they don't check on it anyway. Okay. Now fast forward to a year. You're just looking for a server. One of them didn't show up. Anybody have a friend? I do. Call her up. Can you get in here tonight? We're going to throw you through the training real quick, but we really need to get you on the floor. That's what I'm talking about. You've got to spend time with your staff every single day, whether it be a pre-meal, whether it be some form of an educational system, take a month worth of training, put it together, get your booze reps in there, get your beer reps in there, talk about it. You have managers that are on duty. If those managers are just writing a schedule and just opening the doors during the day, get rid of them. Your managers should be educators. Your managers should have something that they bring to the table that is more about how it is to uh, really, uh, in reality, I don't even believe in upselling. I believe that education creates the upsell. Okay. So if I'm sitting down and then you say to me, Hey, uh, you you as a guest say, uh, Hey, I'm looking for red wine. And they say, oh, okay, well, what one would you like? Well, you're looking for red wine. Here's what we have. The other thing is put your focus where it really needs to be. If you're a gastro pub, in reality, how much red wine are you selling? Do you need to have a list that's 40 bottles long? Or do you have eight bottles that just match and really do a good job? Pick eight bottles that are awesome. that You can teach your staff about two red, two white, two sparkling, and two fucking rosé and move on. Okay. And then they know everything about those, right? And they know everything about it. The same thing comes down to the dishes that are on the menu. Not only should you every day be making a dish from or be making your featured item for the day, but you should also be making an old dish. You should be making a signature dish every day so that your staff can look at it, touch it, taste it, smell it, know exactly what is in that dish. We spend too much time running around putting fires up before a shift than we do educating. Take something from the fine dining restaurants that were nailing it year after year after year. They were educating their staff. They were not just putting a t-shirt and an apron on you and putting you on the floor. And these are all things that you guys do at the consulting agency, right? I mean, when you guys, when you guys, I mean, I do, I I put a program together. So my show opening night on food network is all about the educational process. It's all about accountability. You know, I am owner first. When I open a restaurant, I am 100% owner first before I am chef first three months after we open the doors, I am the chef's best friend. I will go to bat for you. I will work for you. But what you need to do is you need to have everything done ahead of time. Do you know how many restaurants? We did four episodes for the first season of opening night. Do you know how many of those uh, restaurants had recipes ready to go, ready to open? Four. Zero. No. Not one of them had recipes. Okay. So what we ended up dealing with was we ended up dealing with one owner, okay, who was the chef as well, who, who was just creating her food. Then we had three other properties that actually had chefs that were ready to go. These guys were all seasoned professionals, remember. Not one of them had a recipe written down. Not one of them had a recipe that was costed out, ready to go for an operation. It's just that simple. So in my business, when I open a restaurant, I develop the recipes. Um, What I do is, here's my process. I I, I create a menu. I write the menu out. I then have a, uh, a sous chef who is my, one of my culinary assistants. She goes through the entire menu and she pulls out every single uh, menu item that's in there. She then puts them into an Excel file for me into my recipe spreadsheet. I write the recipes out. She then goes through every single recipe and she creates an order sheet. 
From that order sheet, we go back through and we create an inventory list. From that inventory list, I then give that inventory list to my rep, directly to my rep. I give it to three people. They then put in their costing for each item. Then I give those recipes directly to the chef and the chef costs those recipes out. Because here's the deal, guys. Being a chef is not just how well you can cook. It's how well you can operate a kitchen. The idea of a chef is a, a, chef is a person who is the head of the brigade. If you're going to tell me you're an executive chef, you damn well better know how to cost out a recipe. You, just, you guys just got all the answers. See, and I asked for a simple answer. This guy just gave you all the answers. That's Thank simple, you. man. I appreciate that, man, because that was a lot of value. Last question, uh, three answers. You are, uh, you really enjoy, I can tell, you enjoy spending time with your family. Um, they are, they are you, you and your daughters are, are, are the majority on your social media. It seems like that's kind of what, you kind of just do whatever you want to do. You don't follow up. It doesn't look like you're following this specific trend or whatever it is. You're just having fun out there and doing it. As, as chefs, I believe that, that there are some really amazing personalities out there that are in the kitchen um, that could really do some things to create more awareness around themselves and build value on themselves. Because maybe the, the location that they're in maybe is not the location that they want to be in. Maybe they're not happy where they are. Um, I know when I talked to Jay, Jay's really focused on, uh, he's lost a lot of friends in the industry, um, um, just based, based on how much time they're there and things of that nature. And he's really trying to get back around to creating value around himself. Um, what would you do? Or what, what, what recommendations would you give to a chef right now that's kind of coming up that wants to create awareness around themselves? How, how, how can they utilize it better from a social media standpoint? I mean, that's, that's a really tough question. I think it's easier to, to have a plan in place for a business because you have a concept. You know, when you look at my social media, yeah, I'm a chef, but I also travel all over the world. I mean, yeah. so, so I have a series of, I, there's certain things that I do all the time. Um, I always take pictures of my shoes before I fly. It's just the nature of what I do. I love shoes. I know it sounds weird. But I'm a chef. I wear fucking jeans every single day. I'm in a t-shirt 90% of the time. This one says go for the throat because this is my buddy's restaurant in, uh, in Daphne, Alabama, where they sell, they sell snapper throats. You know, it's, uh, so it's easier for a, a business to be able to brand themselves, I believe, than it is for an individual. If I'm a designer on HGTV, I'm going to show you 90% of the shit that I design. If I'm a chef on Food Network, I'm going to show you 90% of the food that I put together. Me, I'm weird. My manager hates it, the way that I put stuff together. You know, you don't put your face in the pictures enough. You're not tagging in the right way. Because for me, it's just genuine. Yeah. I, I just feel that if you want to, if you want to create a persona or something to that effect, then find what it is that you want to be and post that and put it out there. Me, dude, it's just, I don't have a, I don't have an agenda for my social media, except when I fly, I take a picture of my shoes. Every time I fly, I always do a walking video through an airport that has a song that goes through it. At the end of the day, when I walk my goddamn dog, I play the song walking the dog in every single episode or every single video. And I've never once repeated the song. That's how well known that song is or how many times it's been played. Um, in regards to a business world, I think you need three posts per shift. I think you need a concept uh, post. I think you need a culture post and you need a food post. 
The food post can be a picture of the special or the feature that you're running for the day. By the way, I never call things specials. Specials are shit you're trying to give away. Features are items you focus on. Um, I always do a culture shot, which is a conversation with a staff member or an introduction of a staff member or something to that effect or the business, the outside, the inside, whatever it is. And then I do, I do some form of a, of a, a booze shot if you have a bar. You know, for me, I have a barbecue restaurant in Philadelphia. We take pictures of fire. We take pictures of ribs. We take pictures of the features that we do. We're super, super aggressive in our posting for the business because I'm a barbecue spot. I'm not a children's restaurant. I don't want to be super nice on social media with my restaurant. My motto is wait in line or don't. That can go any way. It can be rude or you can order online. I really don't care what it is, but you look at the posting of what we do for my Instagram on my, on the barbecue place. And it's super aggressive. I would never put this model of marketing into a bar or restaurant. It can be taken as offensive. You know, I mean, some of my clients, I mean, some of my clients are, they operate in an aggressive manner like that, believe it or not. And the ones that do do that, uh, are extremely successful and what they've done if they they've given the restaurant its own personality right so the owners don't even take responsibility for it they're like what it's not us the restaurant this and saying this and they've taken that route i mean very interesting i post i post all of the food pictures i post most of the instagram stories for the restaurant whereas my assistant does about 90 percent of the day-to-day posts um, which all I want her to do is to have fun. That's literally what I told her. And I said, there's a line. I'll let you know when you cross the line. And she's gotten pretty close a couple of times where I kind of had to pull her back, but that's very few and far between. My personal page is just, uh, my, not even my personal, my professional chef page is all about travel experience, foods that I eat. And I don't eat in fine dining. Honestly, I don't even eat in fine dining restaurants anymore. You know, I don't eat in the trendy places anymore. I eat in the places where I want to eat. The worse the neighborhood, the better the food. That's the general motto for the way that I go. I want to be in the hood. I want to be in Little Italy. I want to be in Little Mexico. I want to be in Vietnam. I want to be in these little places. Because that, to me, is where the food is the best. If I'm going to South Carolina, certain places I'm going to eat. If I go to Vegas, I'm not eating at fucking STK, dude. I'm eating at the Joyful House. I'm eating at District 1. I'm eating at Chubby Cattle. I'm eating at, at Wolf and Sparrow. Those are the places that I eat when I go out to Vegas. I don't do the chains. If I go to a city, I never, ever, ever will eat in a chain restaurant. And if there is a locally owned and operated location, I only eat in the first location. I never eat in the second or third off location. Um, That's just me. It's the way that I do things. I want people to see everything else that's out there. If you're going to a city and you're traveling and you ended up at a fucking Friday's, you're not my friend. There's a Friday's in your city. Why are you going to a Friday's in Vegas? Why are you going to Friday's in Times Square? Walk around the corner from Times Square and go to the little Irish pub that's got a great fucking burger. No question about it. I'm going to go to all those places in Vegas that you just named when I'm out there because that, that I was going to ask you that question too. Like, where should I go when I'm out? Oh, that's why you never see me. When I'm in Vegas, you never see me. Nobody ever sees me out in Vegas unless you're going to my secret spots that I go to yeah. with my friends. Yeah. 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 
It makes sense, man. It makes sense. Cause I, I was kind of saying, I'm, a, I'm very introverted from that standpoint too. And I'm like, I'm like very like after like, a, if I come off a stage or anything else like that, I'm very like, all right, I need to go back to the hotel room and watch TV now. <laughs> oh, no, dude, when I get off stage, I'm high, man. When I get off stage, <laughs> well, I know I'm that it often, comes down. I am, I am on fire for hours afterwards, especially when I'm at nightclub and bar. I'm out there for seven days, dude. Most yeah. people are getting out there. They're out there for three. I fly in on Saturday. I usually fly out Friday or, or Thursday or Friday. Um, uh, we've got the Food and Beverage Innovation Center out there, which went from 10,000 square feet to 65,000 mm-hmm. square feet. We've got 10 chefs this year. I'm bringing in some unbelievable talent. These are friends of mine that I trust up on a stage. These are friends of mine that I know are going to bring unbelievable content to what it is. And the Food and Beverage Innovation Center is an opportunity for everybody out there, whether you have a corner bar or you have a large scale restaurant, for you to see something new and different that what people are doing, rather than, uh, you know, these people that are creating dishes that you're never going to be able to serve in a restaurant. You know, my team, and I say my team, the team that we have, because they're not my team, my team, I'm sorry, the team that I have that I work with, they get it. Yeah, they want to put together a dish as opposed to putting together a demo. Yeah, okay? they want to put something together that is going to be a creative opportunity for people to look at something that is going to generate revenue. Okay, it's not about using a foam. That in reality, Bob's Bar and Grill is never going to use a foam. It's just not going to happen, man. So yeah, I, I was I was extremely impressed by the stuff I saw out there. I I it, it blew me away. And just, man, I did a sloppy Joe cheesesteak last year. Yeah, a There's sloppy the- Joe cheesesteak, which I've had probably twenty five or thirty people who have sent me pictures six, eight, nine months after that being go- of that going live, of people saying, "I did this. I did something similar to this." If I put together a crazy duck breast that's topped off with, you know, foie gras that's seared and flash fried in tempura batter topped off with a sea foam, it's just not going to happen. Right. People aren't recreating that dish. I want people to do things that are going to make them money and that they're going to have a boatload of fun with. Yeah, I love it, man. Um, Where can people follow you? Man, I'm super easy. You can follow me on any Instagram channel. It's Chef or on any social media platform. It's Chef Bry Duff, C-H-E-F-B-R-I-D-U-F-F. Um, I'm also on Facebook. That's Chef Brian Duffy. I mean, that's where that's kind of a catch-all for everything because I'm not a 49-year-old suburban mom who hangs out on Facebook. Um, you know, there's there's a lot of different opportunities. You got to know your audience when you get out there. Instagram and Twitter are my two audiences, man. That's where I love to play, and the uh, you know the moms love to check it out on Facebook. You know what I'm saying? Um, also, the um, uh, one of the things I was I, I wanted to kind of touch base on was the uh, TikTok situation. I, with your with your, I'm sure your daughter. Does your daughter have TikTok? Yeah, they both do. With your humor, the way and the way that you are, my have you jumped on any of her TikToks? You know, I feel like of, you could do badass on there. I mean, I think a lot. You know, I've got it. Honestly, I haven't really uh, educated myself enough on it. Instagram is simple. You take a picture, you post, uh, yeah. you, yeah. you know, you post content. Twitter is a conversation amongst other people. You can bitch, you can moan, you can educate, you can do whatever you can share. Facebook is a totally different platform, which in reality is much more 
political than anything else. So I know those platforms. I know what to put up and what to do. TikTok, I haven't dug into yet. It's just not, I'm not ready for it. And one of the main reasons is because I post feverishly and TikTok is a well thought out process. Yes. I'm not ready for that yet. Your tweets, and, and, and that's why I want you guys to go follow him. His, his, his Instagram is exactly the way that he explained it about the shoes and the food and this, everything else. It's a, it's, it's a very enjoyable uh, platform to watch. Experiences, man. If you're interested, which I am, I got, I got some, some old school Adidas one right now. See how I love my Adidas, are. baby. I love my those, three stripes. Those shoes are two years old, by the way. That's how clean. If you're a shoe guy, you know that you got to keep the shoes in that base, that white base perfectly clean and then food right you just i mean you can't lose following chef uh on on instagram because all you're seeing is badass clothes and some really nice shoes um some really good a lot of food a lot of food yeah and i really like you show the traveling too man because that's one of the cool things it's like really watching where where you're going and and some of the new stuff that you're doing um i want to thank you so much for for being on the show it means a lot to me um a fellow east coast boy um, you've done a lot of great things. Um, I'm really excited to see you in Vegas. Hopefully we can meet up there too as well. And um, thanks again, man. I appreciate you sharing all the knowledge that, that you dropped here. And hopefully it really helps some of these chefs and some of these restaurateurs that are going to hear this. My pleasure, brother. Thanks so much for having me on. And I will see you in a couple months out in Vegas. Thanks, bro. Cheers, dude. This has been a Todd Collins official production in conjunction with Platinum Reputations. Be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Todd Collins Official or visit us at www.toddcollinsofficial.com. Want to be on the show or become a sponsor? Message us on Facebook and tell us why.